Hey folks, welcome to Make Better Photos and Videos, our podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And today we're going to talk a little bit about a phenomenon that has some potential benefits, but also some serious downsides. And that phenomenon we refer to as pixel peeping. So, Gordon, who do we know does pixel peeping? Oh, well, good question. Uh, mostly other photographers. Yes. Yes. And often to their own detriment. And that's really what I want to talk about today is why pixel peeping can actually negatively impact your photography. Good. So Good question. <laughs> you've done a fair bit of research to prepare, which I commend you for. Um, in your analysis... When we talk, when we say the words pixel peep, what does that really mean? Uh, I believe it refers to the process of looking at either your images or a finished product, either at 100% or greater than 100% magnification, or a one-to-one -one magnification, or at a distance closer than the recommended viewing distance of that sized image. And that's pretty much bang on. So one of the things that we know is that our digital editing software allows us to zoom in on our images. And sometimes, some tools, such as applying sharpening, we want to do at 100% magnification or one-to-one, -one, because we want to see the specific effects of the sharpening. Yes. Is it too little? Is it too much? Are we creating artifacts? There's a good reason to do that. The challenge is that a lot of folks will stay there, and then they start to get annoyed and disappointed, because at 100%, with the nose, well inside proper viewing distance, and let's use the screen as an example, um, you're going to see stuff that, Nobody else is ever going to notice. And yet, I know that people get very excited and very concerned about this. So, Gordon, you recently bought a monitor, right? Yes. And what size screen did you get? I bought a 24-inch on the diagonal screen. Okay, and all, all displays. When you read a number display, 17-inch, 19-inch, 21, 27, 43, whatever... That's the diagonal measurement. And that's an important number because it helps us know what the viewing distance was built to be for that particular display. Large just doesn't mean large. It's actually a definition of where proper viewing distance is and it's really simple math. It's twice. Okay. So in your example, you bought a 24-inch display. Right. So... In a perfect world, your viewing distance to that display would be 48. 48 inches. Are you sitting 48 inches from the display? Uh, no. Not at all. No. Uh, in, front of, in front of me right now, as we record this, there's a 43-inch display. And it's in lovely. In which case, you should be in the other room somewhere. And I should be. I should be. If I'm going to judge an image, I should be looking at it from 86 inches away at minimum. And I don't. Right. The benefit to me is 
the larger screen is not the magnification. It's the ability just to have more stuff on the screen at the same time. Okay. Things like Photoshop panels and that sort of thing. Um, more tools. But unfortunately, what happens a lot is that we will get an image, we'll put it on a big screen, and then we'll get in physically close. And then we'll start to zoom in. And then start to think, oh, gee, I'm a lousy photographer. Oh, gee, my lens isn't sharp. Oh, gee, I'm getting a lot of color fringe. Oh, gee, I'm not getting the focus that I wanted. And we're lying to ourselves. Right. Because it's not true. Because what we're seeing is an exaggeration of how things work. I mean, you and I have played the game. And I mean, it sounds like a horrible thing to do. But we do it. Where we go to a photo exhibit and we play spot the photographer. <laughs> and, and how do we know a photographer? He's standing somewhere close over the barrier. Getting nose against pretty the close glass. up to the image. Nose against the glass. And, and you hear things like, well, this isn't sharp. Oh, this has got a lot of noise. And at that viewing distance, it does. But the non-photographers, the people who just go to the exhibit for the sake of enjoying the exhibit, they're standing at a different distance. And they don't see noise. Right. They don't see a lack of sharpness. And a point that you made in your research is their experience might be different mm -hmm. from viewing the image. How do you mean? Well, they, they see the image in its entirety. They see a cat on a couch. They see the cat looking at you. The cat means something to them. It carries an emotional impact. And they don't care about the rest. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, how many? I, I can think of us back when we were allowed to travel and there was the Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibit, an exhibit that you and I both like going to, where are the benches relative to the photographs? Uh, quite a ways back. About four feet, four feet, five feet away. Yeah. yeah, even more actually. But does that impact negatively our enjoyment of the image? Uh, not impact negatively. If anything, I would say it maybe enhances the enjoyment. I would agree. Now, obviously, this is just my opinion. But one of the things that I never think about when I look at an image, be it a photograph or a painting or a sculpture, from a reasonable viewing distance, is the tech vanishes entirely. Mm -hmm. And all I see is what I hope is the artist, what the artist is trying to portray. For example, if I were to go to the Art Gallery of Ontario in the city of Toronto, which isn't too far from us, they've got a fabulous exhibit by the sculptor Henry Moore. Okay, yes. Where do you view human-size sculpture from? Um, far away. <laughs> right, from a distance, like you would another human. I mean, you know, I don't like crowds, and if someone gets in my space, I get very uncomfortable. So we probably wouldn't view human-sized sculpture from six inches away. No, absolutely not. We might stand six, eight, ten, twelve feet away. <coughs> Excuse me. Because one of the things I know is if I get right up close to those sculptures, I see chisel marks. Yes. I see imperfections. I see failures. But when I step back, 
I get the emotional context that I think the artist was trying to achieve. Right. And there's a story there. I mean, there's a Neil Young song called Down by the Henry Moore, which is <laughs> very much an emotional story. Right. Uh, you know, the influence of what sculpture can do for you. And having had the pleasure to see the sculpture of Auguste Rodin, which I find is massively emotionally powerful, it's not built to be looked at at a two-inch distance, you know, where your breath is fogging up the marble. And I would say that the same thing is true for photography. You know, I, I've, I encounter a lot of folks in the support communities that I, I try to help out at. Well, I'm zoomed in to three times life size, and my images just aren't sharp. There's right. something wrong with my camera. Is there really something wrong with the camera? <coughs> no, there isn't. So what's the challenge? Uh, the challenge is probably to break the, I don't, I'm not going to call it a habit, but break the tendency to do that. I think that that's fair. Now, in your research, you identified some reasons why folks might be inclined to do this. Yes, I did. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, one thing we've already uh, sort of talked about is that you should be looking at the overall intent of the image and what's presented and what the emotional impact of that image is. Uh, depending on what we're shooting, you may want to introduce a degree of grain or imperfection or blurriness to maybe produce an effect of how you're seeing what the age of that photo should be. Um, I think that's pretty much... Well, I think that's a reasonable thing. I mean, I can think about a long, long time ago taking Dagny to Disney World and, you know, we did the cowboy get-up photo, you know, the family photo, everybody dresses up in the old saloon. And what did we get? What did we bring home? We brought an 8 by 10 sepia-toned, grainy, <laughs> black and white print. And right. it looks exactly like what you would expect from something taken in the 1890s with a not-so-great flat-plate camera processed, I don't know, in a horse tank. And, but it's a photo. Right. But it's built that way to look that way, sure. to your point. Um so when I'm trying to talk, when I'm talking to these folks, and of course it's all done virtually, it's, so why are you doing this? Well, I'm going to post it on Instagram, so it needs to be tack sharp. Right. Okay, fair enough. Where do most people look at Instagram? On their phones. On their phones or tablets? Most of them, yeah. Phone Maybe tablet. on the PC. But even then... We're not talking about a giant screen. No. And we're talking about displays that have limited resolution anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, the best that you're going to get is about 400 pixels per inch on one of those retina displays on an iPhone. Right. And it goes down from there. <laughs> but if you're looking at an image on a device that's literally three inches wide at the maximum, and I'm looking at both of our phones and that's where we are. Yeah. How much is sharpness at the 300% magnification level going to play out in that view. 
Absolutely, I would say absolutely nothing at that point. And, and it's not going to. You know. And Go where ahead. I've uh, where I've noticed this is. Um, so you mentioned I had bought a, a new monitor and I was working with a monitor before which uh, was a few years old and according to the times that I had bought it was a comparatively good monitor. But working it uh, as I got better at what I was doing, I was not satisfied with the what I was calling the sharpness of, of the image. But I was... My main uh, computer was a laptop. And if the laptop was running at the same time, I would look at what was on my monitor and then I'd look at what the, the laptop screen was saying and say, you know, for what I'm going to do with this, I don't care what this monitor is saying to me. Now, because the outcome would have been suitable on a laptop. On the laptop, it was that sharp. Right. And I think that that's a key point. We, Some of us from time to time, at some level, are worrying about stuff that, you know, to quote the famous Meatballs movie, it just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And there's, I don't know that that's helping us because I've, I've actually talked to photographers who say, I can't get my photos as sharp as I want them to be. I can't get my images as clean as I want them to be. Okay, well, let's talk about that. How do you mean? Well, let me show you. Okay. And I'll get a screenshot at 500% magnification. Right. And it looks noisy. And there might even be some color fringing in it. You know, some purple or green bands to it. But I'm only seeing a microcosm of the whole image, or a microsection, pardon me, of the whole image. And it tells me nothing. Because as a viewer, I'm never looking at the image that way. Right. And as a creator, I never want to create a situation where a viewer needs to be there to see what I'm trying to see. You know, like, okay, yes. let's suppose I'm driving down the road. And the only lens I've got on my camera is an 11 mil. Right. And I see a wolf a kilometer away. Right. I pull over to photograph that wolf. <laughs> and I'll bring it into whatever editor I have. If I have any expect- expectation that this thing is going to have any kind of value, I'm crazy. Mm. Yep. Because it's going to occupy so very little of the scene. I'm going to have to crop in so much and sacrifice so many informative pickle- pixels. It's going to look like the cat box. It's going to be ugly. So don't shoot it. Right. And I know don't shoot it is a hard thing for a lot of photographers to do because we feel we have to capture everything. Or some of us do. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I think it needs to be tempered by reality. Mm -hmm. So if we can throw away intellectually the photos that are just not working... I hesitate to use the word bad photo, but they're not going to work in the context that the creator desires them to work. My example of the wolf. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not a keeper. Right. That's not worth t- spending any kind of time on. Yep. And all the software in the world is not going to make it better. 
So put it down to experience, move on, and go do something else. You know, you've, you're have you a macro photographer. You t- like to take close-up stuff. Yes. And you just recently, uh, folks, for the camera club where we both belong, um, we had a, I guess it's a monthly theme on close-up. And Gord did something that I got to give him a lot of credit for. Um, he shot a caterpillar from an angle that most nobody shoots the caterpillar. <laughs> so how did you shoot the caterpillar? Well, it was staring me in the face. So I got down to the caterpillar's level the best I could, <clears throat> uh, balanced my lens as best I could, and I moved it up until I got the caterpillar in focus. And I am literally at the caterpillar's level. And this uh, uh, the caterpillar was a little higher up, but if it had been any lower, that would have implied putting the camera down on the ground and moving it. And yet, that photograph is, in my opinion, remarkably telling because it's not how I have ever seen a caterpillar in a photograph before. <laughs> it's shot. It literally is shot face on. It is. And that particular caterpillar was um, enjoying a snack. <laughs> I don't think the snack was being was enjoying being a snack, uh, but there were lots of elements in that photograph that were not perfectly sharp. Yeah, yeah. The depth of field was like non-existent, so pretty much anything behind his eyes was non-existent. So you didn't worry about that, no, because you were thinking in the context of the total story. Total story, I'm looking at the looking at the hair coming out of this caterpillar. I can see it going all fuzzy in the background, and I can see it biting or something he shouldn't have been biting. Or perhaps he should have been biting. Who am I to judge the, <laughs> the you know, the, the morality of cal- caterpillars? Although we are having a huge problem this year with caterpillars. Yes, we are. <clears throat> in our trees. Um, that's a different problem entirely. So you didn't have to spend your time zoomed in super tight and criticizing your sharpening and worrying about noise, you contextually created your edits, and we all edit to some extent, based on the story you wanted to tell. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Isn't that a lot more liberating than being zoomed in at 300% saying, geez, this isn't quite as sharp as I might like? Yeah, and I I think... uh, Part of part of my acceptance of this came about from uh, I don't know if it's direct or not, but uh, I shoot with a, a four third sensor. Mm-hmm. It's less forgiving of uh, bad lighting situations or or high ISOs or so. I I've learned to. Not worry about that. I get things optimized as much as I can. Realize that I'm going to have some things that are not correct uh, in the perfect world. Mm-hmm. Decide what has to be correct and make it so. And let the rest fall where it will. So I think you just said something that is both resonant, accurate, and very Jean-Luc Picard, make it so. Make it so. <laughs> but you make it so. Yes. It's a conscious act. It's a conscious decision. And so in the example of the caterpillar, 
you probably knew going in that you weren't going to get everything in focus back to front. Oh, absolutely. And it didn't matter <laughs> because you had a story to tell. The furriness, you know, the whole story of this cat. Bad hair day. <laughs> Bad hair day. <laughs> Fair enough. Although I think it's absolutely a brilliant image. That's the point. As the creator, you were thinking in terms of the shot, the total image. Right. Whether for yourself or to share with others. Yeah. I honestly don't think it matters about who's going to see it because we're all our own harshest critic. Yes. You know, I've, I've got photos that I think are absolute junk that I've shot. Like anything I shot more than six months ago. In general, I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty critical of past work. But other folks will look at it and go, wow, that's incredible. And they'll spend a good amount of time thinking about the photograph and viewing the photograph. You know, I went through a period of black and whites of trees in fog. And emotionally at the time, that was what I was looking to do. Right. And I can look at them now and go, eh, don't care. <laughs> because I'm not in that place. Right. But the photograph can take me back to that place because that's what a good photograph should do. Right. Yet others will look at that and go, oh, did you notice this? Did you notice this other thing that was happening in the context of the story? You know, the fact that it's foggy and it's damp and there's still an old man walking his dog in the distance. I can't remember. <laughs> I really can't. But right. they're right. And that is, a, that is something that makes the image more inviting. But if all I was concerned about was the amount of noise or whether I had, as you talked about earlier, consciously applied a grain effect. Yes. I would have lost the whole point. I would have lost the whole point of the image. And by the way, yes, I did consciously apply a grain effect because I wanted to simulate what I would feel many decades ago, shooting Tri-X, right. pushed one stop, right, which was a grain fest. And Tri-X was, Tri was ASA 400, ISO 400. Right. Push it a stop to 800 cause you, and you had to process it yourself. And it was grain city. But you got a look that you wouldn't get any other mm -hmm. way. So I think that Part of our process is we're building our photographs, making it so. We're doing things because we're trying to convey a story. But when we, when we fall down the rat hole of zooming in and living there, like I don't say there's anything wrong with zooming in to check your sharpening and then get out. Yes. But if you're doing all your work at 300% and you're judging your work at 300%, you're doing yourself a grave disservice. I mean, we know someone who has done this in the past and decided that that person's camera was inadequate for their needs. Yes. And they needed to get a new camera because that would make it all better. Yes. And it's not true. It, it makes no difference at all because they did. And both cameras are excellent. They've got great sensors. The person owns great glass, has a good eye. Right. Does really lovely photographs. 
and nobody else saw any of the sharpness or noise issues that this person perceived mm-hmm. yes. at 300 times, or pardon me, three times, 300% magnification. Right. Because nobody else looks at it that way. And this person does get a lot of joy from sharing their images with other people. Right. But they were actually hurting themselves. They were saying, no, this is not good work. By placing this invalid value judgment on the work that they were doing. Right. And maybe not picking up the camera for some period of time. Yeah, that that struck me about it. I, I know I know what you're referring to here, but and and that struck me. And uh, well, I guess the best I could come up with is that well, somebody's you're going to do what you're going to do, but uh, you'll eventually come to some kind of a compromise with yourself mm-hmm. about what you want to achieve and what you can achieve. Yeah, I think there's a point of realization that how we as creators look at stuff needs to be tempered by how it's going to be used. You know, I, I, I can't put myself in the mind of a painter. Right. Because I'm a... I should be legally prevented from painting. <laughs> I'm really lousy at it. But I think in the context of like a Michelangelo lying on a platform, painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, what if he was absolutely crazy and go nuts about the position of every brushstroke across the context of the entire ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? Mm-hmm. He would have been cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in about a day. <laughs> because in context, it wouldn't matter. Yes. You know, I think an artist will work to do their best, but those artists, they didn't agonize over this stuff because they were thinking in the context of how it was going to be used. And I remember reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci, and he said that this was one of da Vinci's strengths. He could visualize the whole thing. Right and then construct it from the sum of its parts, be it a mechanism or art or mm-hmm. whatever, but he saw things in their full con- context. Right. And that, I think, is one of the things that, you know, still causes people today to say the guy was a genius. Right. He, he was. In but, my opinion, he was, absolutely. And I, I think uh, what you made is uh, is the really the really telling point in all of this is that uh, the tech. We have we have to start seeing our way around the tech. The tech is a means of getting what you want uh, into that image. Mm-hmm. Um, the tech is very is easy. There are, there are a, a certain limited number of things that you can do that will produce what you want it to produce. But if you can't visualize it and if you can't see the elements in there that's going to make it important for that image then all the tech and all the sharpness and all the nice bokeh and everything not going to happen no I, I 
I agree with you completely. You know, years ago, I had an opportunity to work with directly with a company in Germany who built a piece of software <coughs> that did one job. And it compensated, the job was to compensate for photographer microshake. Right. Not that you screwed up the focus or, you know, the, the critter was moving. Right. But that someone else was moving, the person in charge of the camera. Right. Um, and this is built, the software was built by a bunch of scientists and engineers. And it was absolutely brilliant. But it was massively computationally intensive. It used a lot of computer resources. Um, as sometimes happens, the user interface was a little bit confusing. You know, sometimes scientists really understand where they're trying to go and the cosmetics of UI are not <laughs> their top priority. Right. And sadly, the company decided to, to shut down because the work involved in maintaining this massively complex software wasn't turning into revenue for them. Right. And that's um, a business subsides not on goodwill. They subside on the ability to keep the doors open so they can generate goodwill. Right. Um, and they got out of it. The company still exists. The original company uh, still exists, but the product no longer does. Right. Um, which to me is sad because it was a brilliant product. And at the time I had misplaced confidence in my ability to hold at certain shutter speeds. Right. Particularly for birds in flight. Mm -hmm. And I found that this software made a real difference for me. And today, of course, we've got the ability to deal with that, with other software that exists. But I also realized that when I got involved with them, I lost the connection to the image as a whole. Right. I got so concerned about the sharpness of the eyeball zoomed in <coughs> that I missed the whole point. And now I can look at those photographs that I could spend, would have spent a lot of time on in edit and nobody would care. Right. And nobody includes me. Well, the, I guess it, uh, as an offshoot of what you just said is the the world of photography has moved on from that that point. What what you're describing would have been very effective or necessary for making the large images that uh, we would like to see, but there are not very many large images out there, and certainly not enough to pay the bills. No, they're not. I mean, we, we encountered this, and we've talked about it before, and undoubtedly we'll talk about it again. And the amount of printing that's done these days is, I mean, that's on a rocket sled to zero, sadly. Pretty much, yeah. Um, because a lot of photography has become disposable. You know, we'll throw, well, I'll use the universal we, which does not include me. We'll throw images up on social media and not think about that they've got a life cycle of about two seconds before the viewer moves on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many. And there is 
at least in, in our culture, the assumption that more is better. There is that. So if there are 100 images to look at, that's better than looking at one, which is not the art gallery model. But the people you're talking about, though, is, is, is another, another subset of people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's, that's what they photograph. That's what they like to show. Um, maybe the people that do want to do that belong to camera clubs and sundry other things. Yeah, chances are they're making bigger images, and but not enough. And and if they're printing their own, uh, the quality of that program means nothing to them because what they can produce on their printers is what matters to them. Yes, exactly. It's all about the outcome. Right. You know, if I if I'm fortunate enough to have a printer that'll do 17 inches wide by forever. Right because it's a roll printer, that's wonderful. But that's the gating factor, right? Mm-hmm. It can only be as good as my printer can produce, no right. matter what I do to it right. in post. And my experience with the photograph is going to be the photograph on the wall. Yep. And there aren't a lot of them. And one of the people I know who prints more than anybody else I know, I mean... I've been in his house, and it's wall-to-wall it's wall with some very good images that he has made. And he had them all printed at either Walmart or Costco. Mm-hmm. And he's happy. Well, he's happy, and most people that see them are happy. Uh, they may never make it to one of the galleries downtown, but I don't think he cares whether they do or not. So he's happy in his work? He's very happy in his work. So how can that possibly be bad? It can't. It really can't. No. You know, I, I admit, I, I'm a, I mean, I've gone through the training. I'm an accredited, whatever the hell that means, fine art printer, and I do print myself. But I'm very selective what I bother to print. Right. Because the person who's looking at it most... Is you. Is me. And the folks in my home. Right? Because I don't post elsewhere or or do shows or that sort of thing. And that's, it doesn't make me right. But what it does tell me and remind me (coughs) that as I walk through the upstairs hallway and I see that full face shot of Akela, the gray wolf, that I know I was two feet away, no fence, (laughs) when I shot it. And it is my favorite wolf photo ever. And I will cherish it for my life because it's a memory. I'm not going to get face-to-face with that wolf ever again. Right. Um, Things happen. He's gone. Um, Is it sharp? Yeah. Is there any digital noise in it? I don't know. (laughs) Yes, that's very true. Because I don't care. Right. The outcome matters. His eyes look great. His teeth look great. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he's a big, he's a cross between something that'll rip your throat out and and sit in your lap. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy how hard we can be on ourselves. Right. By pixel peeping. Yes. 
by spending too much time on the things that don't really matter at the expense of the things that do. Yes. You know, I can honestly say I've never found any photographer that I've had the opportunity to work with that feels better about themselves after pixel peeping. Never. I don't think so. I have had the wonderful joy of spending time with photographers who forgot to pixel peep and are having enormous joy in what they're doing. Right. And for me, I'd rather see somebody having joy than frustration from a creative art, whatever that creative art is. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts? I, abs- I absolutely agree. I mean, I have this conversation with uh, uh, members uh, of our club periodically um, for, for various reasons, and I, I keep coming back to the point that if you're not shooting to enjoy it, then why are you shooting it at all? It's a great question. Because if it's not... Uh, if you, every time you go out, you have to worry about how perfect this is going to be. Stay home and read a book or watch television or something, but don't waste your time. No, I, and you know, interesting. I think that ties in. So in the past month, um, we do a thing in, in the local camera club, which is a photographer study. And last month you did uh, the American photographer or Swiss American photographer. Swiss American. Robert Frank. Yep. I didn't care for the work, but others do, and they get a lot out of it. And what I don't like has nothing to do with grain or sharpness or any of that stuff. Right. I didn't like the emotional context. Right. It it just felt forced to me, and that's okay. Others can disagree, and we're both right. Mm -hmm. But at no time... Did we get involved in this technical miasma of junk that really doesn't matter? Yeah. And even when we did, the only part of it we got involved in is that, oh, look, we can't see the faces, but maybe he's trying to make the image anonymous. Right. Not it's, uh, oh, look at his lighting, there's nothing in the faces, and it's got very grainy out there. No, we can't see his faces, but maybe for a reason. Yeah, it could have been a constructive choice by the photographer. In my opinion, he's definitely got an agenda. And there's a story he is feeling compelled to, to tell. Yes. And in that context, he's done a really, really fine job. And I agree with you. When I, when I first started looking him up, I said, I don't know why everybody's making such a fuss about this guy because I hate what he's done. And then I started reading the background, and then I started seeing what his agenda was and saying, mm, well, maybe he's achieved it, and I didn't miss it. I, I missed it to start with. Because you weren't aligned with where he was trying to be. Yes. And, I, and that's true for me, too. Right? I didn't align with his methodology of storytelling. Doesn't okay. mean that he failed. Well, there's a whole generation of people who feel he didn't. Exactly. And we're, I think we're all content in saying, you know, we like what we like, and if you don't like it, that's okay. Right. We don't have to have a war or bash everybody, each other on Twitter or any of the social media just because we don't agree about something. 
that is the ability to disagree and still be respectful, that's, that's a sign of a higher civilization. And, and while we may be losing that or feel like it's losing it, that's a different topic. That's from a different topic. Pixel peeping. But I think we can agree that of all the photographers that we've spent time looking at, pixel peeping is probably not their main thing to do. I don't think any of them did any pixel peeping. No. No, none of the ones we've talked about. Well, and I, I've had the, the joy to, to be taught by some of these people. And I know they don't. They're thinking about the context and the story. Um, so maybe that's something that we could all learn from. I would, yes, I would, I would say that. So my closing thoughts to our listeners would be, pixel peeping isn't helping. And if it's not helping, stop doing it and focus on the joy of creation. Okay. Last Oops. thoughts from you. Um, no, I think you've covered it just fine there. Okay, cool. Well, this has been the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I've been Ross. And I'm Gordon. And we'll talk to you again real soon.